Hey, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I'm Thad Forrester, and this is episode number 98, and it's actually a replay of episode 18 back from 2016 with Mr. Gail Halverson. As I went back and listened to this episode, and I cleaned it up quite a bit, but I was amazed at the wisdom and the great stuff contained in this one, so I hope you really enjoy it. This man not only served our country and did so much good while he was active duty military, but he actually went back to Russia and Germany other times and as um, service opportunities and as missionaries. And here he was able to meet some of these men who he had had once been enemies and trying to kill each other. Now they were serving together in church service. So this is really great stuff. One thing that he really cherishes and talks about is freedom and how those kids that he was given candy and gum to were saying, if we lose our freedom, we will never get it back. So I hope you enjoy this. Have a great Christmas. And please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. I think those are the two main ones. So please give it a rating and a review. Appreciate you. For joining me today. My pleasure. My privilege. I have, you know, when I started this podcast, I had a short list of people that I wanted to talk to. And you're definitely one of the ones I wanted to talk to. And I I had the idea, yeah, I'd love to do it for a Christmas special. So uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on Patriot to the Core uh, you are a man in pretty high demand, it seems. Uh, it seems like you travel all over. <laughs> seems like the media comes to you as well to interview you quite often. Well, it's been interesting. <clears throat> For two sticks of gum, it sure changed my life. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, I wanted to, to get into your, uh, you know, the, the candy bomber itself story, but, but one thing I want to ask you first is I read an interview where you, you shared how you first notified your parents that you were a pilot while they were working out in the field. Do you mind sharing that story? The parents, my parents, uh, somehow or other, uh, they, knew, they knew about it when I, I, I got my pilot license before the war. I, uh, they knew about that then, and uh, I had very little university before I went in the military. And, and uh, before the war started, they had a competition uh, for a free uh, flight program Combination of which would be a, your private pilot license, and I wanted to watch the farm, the farm, or work in the field, watch the planes going overhead, and I said that's what I want to do. I want to get out. The farm was a good life, but I want to get in the air. And so before the war, they started a non-college pilot training program to stay in Utah, well, they all over the United States, and uh, stay in Utah. Uh, altogether, there were about 160 uh, young men going to night school to study the flight regulations and about flying, aerodynamics, and everything about the rules and regulations. And, and then they gave the pilot, private pilot test to the 100 and some, 50, 60, and gave 10 scholarships. And I, I studied and I got the, one of the 10 scholarships. So my family were well aware of that and cheering me on. And I got my pilot license in about May of 1941. And uh, the 10 of us in the state, we put in 50 bucks each and bought an airplane. Piper Cub with a 55 horsepower engine. So that's how I got started in aviation. That was before the Pearl Harbor. Did you actually really do a buzz over your parents' farm? Yeah, <clears throat> a little and a real buzz. I knew all about regulations. On my first 
cross country before I got my license. I was in solo cross country. You got to do that as part of the training program. I went over the farm and had it was a required altitude and circle and circle and gun the engine back and forth. My big old black dog that chased airplanes, I could see him running down there, around around the house. <laughs> and the folks, folks come out on the porch and what, and I went back and went to Logan, Utah, and then went on back to Brigham City, and, and it was a good. But I, I didn't violate any flight regulations in the process. Sure, sure. <clears throat> well, I thought that was a great story. Anyway, you got to see see your home and and uh, see your dog. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really cool. Well, I wanted to, if we could go uh, fast forward a little bit to then to, um, to you know, I guess it's got multiple names, the Operation Little Vittles, the the, the Berlin Airdrop, Airdrop, I guess. Uh, can you, will you explain what happened there and, and how, you know, why those children touched your life and you did what you did? I, I got on the airlift by kind of an accident. Uh, I was single at the time, in 1948, when the blockade occurred. And then my best friend that was married, and we were flying out of Mobile, Alabama, to South America. He his he was to take give me dinner on Sunday morning. And was so good, and, and his he was put in the list to go in the blockade, fly the, the airlift, and and uh, they, they hadn't been married too long, and and I I took his place. I, I volunteered to take his place. So I got on there with some kind of a fluke, and the Soviets cut off all the food to West Berlin. West Berlin located deep inside of East Germany, and, uh, and so I, I, I started flying. And the year the airlifting started, started Larry Kasky, my dear friend, who just got had been married a short time, and uh, I didn't think the airlift would last very long, and so I wanted to get some movies of what it was like and. So I flew uh, three round trips. This was about early, early July 1948. Three round trips from Frankfurt, West Germany, supplies to Berlin. The King flew all night doing that. Came back to to, to Frankfurt, supposed to go to bed, but I, I wanted to get movies. I thought the thing would be over pretty quick. So I, hit, I just had my uniform, so I needed to get a flight on the airplane, leaving every five minutes in West Germany. So I went back with my camera, took pictures. The kids at the end of the runway, I could leave the airplane because I just came as a passenger. And uh, those kids on one side of the barbed wire and me on the inside, taking movies. And they they talked to me in German in their pidgin English, and they learned enough learned enough to tell talk to me in English. And I was there for one hour. And out of those 30 kids lying at the barber, not one of them, by voice inflection or body language, said, don't you know kids like chocolate? Not one begged. And during the war, I'd flown in Africa and England and all around the, the place. And the kids that age, new Americans had chocolate. They had uh, begging for chocolate. What struck me immediately was these kids had not, hadn't had any chocolate for a couple of years where they could buy it. And not one of them for that hour when they stopped, not one said, you got any chocolate. Hmm. Why? Because they're so grateful for flour to be free. They wouldn't ask for something so extravagant. So it's not me. It's those 30 kids at the barbed wire fence in Berlin who were so grateful, gratitude, grateful for flour, dried eggs, dried potatoes, 
Dried everything can be dried. Grateful for the chance to be free. But not one would be a beggar. That was a lesson that stuck with me the rest of my life. Well, because they didn't, I uh, didn't have any chocolate to give them. I two sticks of gum, felt in my pocket, and all I had was two sticks of gum. I said, get out of here. You'll have a fight, bloody nose. But I, I said, you'll never see him again. He'd be flying. You can't. You should be in bed, but in Jewish Germany. And that's the only way to get out the fence to, to take my sleep time to hitchhike to Berlin. You never see him again. Give him what you got. And I started turning back to France, broken into four pieces through the barbed wire. And it wasn't a fight. No boys and girls, eight to 15, watching. And they were so grateful that they just didn't, the kids that didn't get any half stick of gum wanted a piece of wrapper to smell. So I tore off pieces of wrapper and passed it to the rest of them. And they're, so they smelled tough in those and just smelled a piece of wrapper and their eyes got big. Well, I, I thought for a few bucks, I could drop enough gum and chocolate for all of them to have some. And I knew then it was against regulations, and I, and I, and I was sicker for regulations, but I found myself saying, come back tomorrow in this open place. When I come over, just over your head, Solano, and you're still on the other side of the bar, the West Berlin side of the bar, bar I'll drop enough of you stuff for you to share it. They said, you have old, you have old, to share it. They said, how do you know, how do we know what airplane you're in? I said, well, when I come over Berlin the first time over, over the, the, the radio fix, I'll wiggle the wings that my airplane, just watch that one. That's the one that's got it. So that's what happened. Came back the next day. They hadn't told another soul about the same 30 kids standing out in the open before the, just before the barbed wire fence. I wiggled the wings and they just went crazy and pushed it out. Three parachutes with chocolate bars and, and really stumbling gum. And enough for everybody to have some. Pushed it out the flare chute just before I landed. There's a opening in the bottom of the airplane to drop flares out of. And just before I landed, I pushed it out. Couldn't tell if I hit hit him or he pulled it on the runway. But we unloaded 20,000 pounds of flour and and taxied out take off right past the end where we had dropped it. There on the bar bar with all 30 kids. Hands waving through the barbed wire, three parachutes, three hanks of parachutes, waving to all the airplanes. The miles were going up and down. Well, the end result was years later, I'm not years later, months later, uh, we we dropped, uh, we'd given them 23 tons of candy, 20 tons by air, and uh, and the other three tons at Christmas time distributed all the orphanages in, in West Berlin at Christmas time. The letters, were, the letters were coming like crazy with instructions and maps for where to drop it. So that that was the, the thing that my, old, my buddy started doing it. Kids in East Berlin wrote, "We can't help it. We're here back, back with the Russians. We're not, we haven't got any chocolate either." So I said, "Well, the kids are kids. The heck with the, the politics." So I started dropping some parachutes in East Berlin, uh, where the kids wrote me where they, they would be in the park. I did that. For, for two weeks, two, two drops, two big drops. And uh, I got a call from the Air Force commander. He says, what are you doing over Berlin? And I said, I'm flying like mad. He says, what are you doing over East Berlin? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I'm dropping those nasty communist kids. So you can't do that. And I said, a lot of gravity is on both sides of the border. Uh, it's the same on both sides of the border. So that's not the problem. He says the Soviets have claimed to the State Department it's a dirty capitalist trick. 
You're trying to influence the minds of these young people against their regime. You've got to stop. Well, for two sticks of gum in 1948, I was in the space program after that. They sent me back, the Air Force sent me back to school, and I got a permanent commission, and they sent me back to school. And when it was space program, and they got called in, in the the kids are growing up, told their kids about it, and they wanted me to come by and drop parachutes to the kids the kids who used to catch them. So in 1970, I dropped out of a space program in L.A., Englewood, and uh, went to Berlin for a week and dropped parachutes to the kids that used to catch them all over the Temple Air Base. Oh, that's cool. I didn't and, know that. Then I went, then I went back to, to the space program and... A few months later, I got a call from the Pentagon and said, Halverson, you're going to be reassigned. I don't want to be reassigned. I want to stay in the space program. I was commander of a huge satellite tracking station. <clears throat> I said, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. She got no choice. The commander of Berlin said, the general says, he wants you in Berlin to be the new commander that replaces Clark Tate, the present commander. The, the Germans have been to me and and they, they just almost demanded that you be, you come as a new commander. Well, anyway, I had no choice. So out of the space program, I went back to Berlin for two, six, young for four years, and uh, met the kids that grown up and their kids, and, and we had open houses and airdrops to their kids, it's like a, the kids, the kids that used to catch. And the longest the commander had been in Berlin was two years and eleven months, since 1945 until 1970. And I was there for, they asked me to stay for four, I was four there for four years. Tons of the kids, that used, the little girl Mercedes, you know all about her. And uh, it says, when you see the white chickens drop it there, I don't care if it scares. We got to know Mercedes, and after yeah. years later, they she, they, she and her husband and kids came to visit, visit Utah. I had a few questions for you. So first of all, did, did Wrigley's ever donate a lot of gum or candy to you or to the mission? Tons and tons. Okay. I, you know, I got 23 tons. There's 23 tons. All the candy companies did. Wrigley, Hershey's, tons of Hershey's. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't, we dropped it all with parachute except three tons. Three tons was Christmas parties on the ground to West Berlin. But uh, I, I had a Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts. When the Confectioners, the president of the Confectioners Association, got a hold of me and said, "Halverson, we'll give you all, your, all the stuff you need to drop." And he's president of the whole Confectioners Association, and uh, he says, "How much can you use?" And I told him, "That's how, that was ended up and finally being 23 times." But the, the, the airdrops, all my buddies were dropping. So Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts, the back where it was. The school system in Chicopee wrote me a letter. I couldn't tie out the parachutes nationally. So they said, look, I know you got a problem. Yeah, up to that point, when we got more people were donating on the base in Germany and getting me stuff, but this was coming to the States, a heavy body, uh, lifting a heavy amount of there. And they said, Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts, and we'll tie up all your parachutes. Have the candy company send to us. We'll tie the parachutes in the cardboard boxes, ready to drop. All you got to do is cut the tops off. And that's that's what happened, the 20, 20 tons up. And, and my buddies were already dropping. I, I got it started, but we, we dropped all over. West 
Berlin, and of course I told you about the ones we dropped in East Berlin. Yeah, we there were tons and tons. There were lots of letters, many letters, with maps. School kids, Peter Zimmerman wrote me a letter and say, "You're giving us a hard net Mercedes Wild." Not Peter. Peter gave me a letter too. She says, "You're you're giving us a terrible problem." She says, "We got chickens, and you we're on the end of the runway, not far, and they're." They think you're a chicken hawk, and when you fly over, you're, they run in the chicken coop and they're losing their feathers, <laughs> and 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 they're not laying eggs very good. That's a problem during the blockade. She chewed me out. This old seven-year-old girl. And then the last paragraph was, when you see the white chickens drop a there, I don't care if it scares me. Well, I couldn't find her white chickens, so I, I took a big pack of chocolate bars and found candy. I had her letter. I mailed it to Mercedesville in Berlin. And it ended up after the war that they came to my house in Utah and their family. Oh, that's great. So, so one, one question I have, uh, Mr. Halverson, is how did you get, at least initially, did you have other people in the plane, or how were you getting the, the candy out of the plane? Well, that's a good question. Our airdrops at first were <clears throat> low over the kids and we were meeting. So we, we had to be flying the airplane. So there's three men on the crew. I was a pilot and I had a co-pilot, a flight engineer. And the flight engineer is between the two pilots, making sure that everything's all right. And right underneath, right underneath the seat almost, of the crew chief standing up between the pilots, is a hole in the fuselage, a stovepipe, like a stovepipe. These airplanes are not pressurized. And right through the, from the back of the cockpit outside the airplane, the size of a, a, a large stovepot. And the purpose for that design was if you had trouble at night, you're losing the engine and you had to make a crash landing at night, you'd drop a flare out of that chute and it was on a parachute and it would light up the whole side and you land the guy's in the farmer's field instead of the house, his house. It's a flare chute. And it also for signals during the war, they dropped signals out that thing. So that was perfect. Okay. So I gave it to crew chief and I, and I said, I had my arm up. said, well, when I bring my arm up, shove it out the parachute, out the parachute. That's how we dropped it. But later on, we quit dropping on the end of the runway because the crowd got too big. It's thought kids get hurt. So we dropped all around the city of West Berlin. We had a map of the whole city. We did uh, get all these, all these, this candy and get it to the already packaged and cardboard box, we didn't even tie up any of it. It came up tied from the States. And then uh, we had a map, we had a target map. And when somebody had dropped it at one place, we put a pen there and it would move it around all over the West Berlin. The, the kids were letting give detailed instructions. When you take off, the second railroad bridge turn right one block, I'll be in I'm one block behind that bridge and I'll be there every day at two o'clock, drop it there. We tried to make special deliveries where we could, but where we couldn't like with Mercedes, I mailed it to her. <laughs> we had a whole press crew, a whole people who were answer, helping answer the mail. We couldn't answer all the mail. I'm sure. Uh, people answer the mail. Well, well, you couldn't even answer all of your uh, proposals for women back in the States either, could well, you? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, even though I was bald-headed, I got quite a few uh, offers. From, <laughs> it was crazy. It was, it was fun. But I had a, one, of, one special gal back home and. Uh, and I, I 
I'm sorry. I'm already. I'm already got plans. That was jolly. What one thing you said uh, is you said you know the children they taught you about freedom. We we explain what you mean by that. I know you did a little bit, but is there any more to that? The children there had uh, seen what happened in the dictatorship, and and during the, the reign of Hitler, there were terrible things done to the people raised in, in opposition. And so even early on in their lives, seeing what, what the dictatorship was like, and then the most, the most significant thing was when they drew the artificial border about, around Berlin, the British, French, and Soviet American sectors, and right in, out of Berlin, those divisions in the city of Berlin. And they have aunts and uncles in the Soviet sector, of course. It was this was the, the city of Berlin was just cut up into four pieces, and those people in the, in the Soviet control had brothers, aunts and uncles just across the artificial border in West in the British, French, and American sectors. Those people would walk over across the border when this thing first started to see what it was like before the blockade. And the, and the British and French and Americans were giving them the Germans leeway to get leadership going. They they fostered, did helped them get capitalist businesses going. So the kids and people in East Berlin walk across the border. It was like day and night, and right in the same city. So what freedom people could choose. They fixed up their bombed out houses. What they could. And now the southern east, waiting for the, the communist government to fix the houses. And, and the, the contrast was black and white. Communism versus freedom was across an open road at that time before they put the wall up. And that's why they put the wall up. The contrast was so much that the, east, the Germans were just hoping they could get out of the communist rule. And the, the, the wall went up to keep them out. So that, that, that was freedom versus communism, right in the middle of, of the city of, of Berlin. And the, the contrast, Stalin couldn't compete. Here was a showcase in one place, from one side of the street to the other. It was stark. It was stark. It just, it, it's incredibly uh, different. And the, the system was exposed right there into the world. And they couldn't take the competition. That's why they cut off the supplies coming across wow. East Berlin to West Germany and Western Berlin. So what were the risks in doing these these candy drops? Well, the risk, uh, we didn't alter our flight patterns at all. We just, we just as we, when we came into Berlin, you had to make a big circle to get in the traffic pattern. So we dropped all over, all over the city. The risks... The only risk that I had is when I did it without permission. I almost got court-martialed, and I knew I wasn't supposed to do that. So there's no, there were no risks uh, except from we. Well, it, what there, there was, there was in uh, the Soviets did uh, in bad weather they jammed some of our navigation stations, but that wasn't because of the candy drop. They didn't like it. They made official protest to Washington about that, but. Uh, no risk to the crews in driving them. And when we dropped all 
with altitude coming around the city, we'd send the, the, our crew chiefs back. The, the airplane, the C-54, which did almost all the work for the Americans, had two escape hatches, one on two on each side. And because of the flower dust and the coal dust, because all the stuff were flying, we flew with those escape hatches out, big enough to get people out. The escape hatch was big enough somebody crawled through. So we flew with all four of those out, suck out all the dust that was getting in under the floorboards and the controls. So after a while, when the crowd got too big on the end of the runway, we were sent back to crew chief and, and cut the tops out of these cardboard boxes with handholds halfway down the big cardboard box and just push it up against that escape hatch and that the wind stream would suck it out of that escape hatch and parachutes would fly all over, just scattered all over the wind. And that's how we did it. That's how we dropped 20 tons. And I, as I said, I, we had lots of our guys doing it. Uh, we got all the supplies. I had a, ma- I had a map in the operations in, in Franklin, Rhein-Mine, and Wiesbaden in the West Germany. And, and we'd, when the pilots would go out, they'd put a pin. When they came back, they'd put a pin where they dropped in Berlin, West Berlin. And, and we'd move it all over, all around, dropping it, because we made a circle over it in East Berlin, West Berlin, West Berlin over East Berlin, and West Berlin back to, to land. And so that's how we distributed it. Of course, they totally, everybody participated in my outfit. Now, simple things amuse me. So uh, I know that you used handkerchiefs at first, but when this, when this operation, when these got, when you started dropping a lot of candy, uh, what what were the parachutes made out of? Well, old canvas, old light canvas. The the, the can, canvas companies in the East Coast provided all we wanted, and the, the Chicopee, Massachusetts had the assembly line, and uh, they just cut these up in a, a little bit bigger than the, hanks, the men's handkerchiefs, and the strings, the string companies to mid string sent all we needed. Canvas guys and all they all we had to have, and uh, kids in Chicopee would tie it up and and roll it. They'd take the parachute apex and roll it down into the candy, and and, and stack it in the in neat discreet bundle, and put them in, put it in these cardboard boxes and sew it clear out. And so when the, we cut out the top and check when the crew chief would chuck it up against the escape hatch, it'd come out like a vacuum. And immediately, the little parachutes would fly open, and then the wind would scatter over a huge area. Okay. Yeah, I've been wondering that. When when I was a kid, one of my most favorite toys was some little superheroes that had a plastic parachute. And, I've seen uh, yeah. Yeah. and I, I couldn't find one. I've never found any like that since, but they were really good. And so, yeah, I loved either climbing a tree and dropping it or just throwing it in the air and letting yeah, it yeah, fall yeah. out. So uh, that, that's right. I, I had a. I got started with this thing before the war when I got the flight scholarship I told you about, and uh, so one of the places after I, and we bought that airplane like I said, and, and uh, we could rotate on who had it when. Uh, and I used to have, live on the farm up in the Rigby, Idaho, before I got in the seventh grade and went to Utah. And I had some dear friends up there. So this was before the war, before the blockade and anything. And uh, I'd fly over there, and then I 
tied a parachute under a candy bar and dropped it to my best buddy up there in Idaho, Rigby, Idaho. Harold Dowdle. Harold Dowdle was my buddy. Uh, growing up through the sixth grade with us in, the, in Rigby, Idaho. And so I came over to his house and, and I couldn't land up there. didn't have an airport, so I dropped him. That was my first experience before the war. I was dropping the parachute to Harold Dowdle in, uh, in Rigby, Idaho. <laughs> That's cool. Well, Mr. Alverson, what, uh, did you ever have any hesitancy or reservations to, to do this with the kids? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I was a very conservative guy and a conservative pilot. And I, I just, uh, I, I had this, a real struggle. But when I saw those, uh, kids reaction to, to two sticks of gum to four pieces and the look in their eye, I just said, I got to do it. I just had a voice that you got to, you got to continue. You got to mm-hmm. take the chance. And I, I could have been court martial, but, uh, I got a phone call from, from the office of General Tunner. He said, you know, like I said before, what are you doing? And dropping Master Connors kids. And then he, you know, I thought I was going to get it then, but then he said, and General says, so you keep doing it. So I, I was, I was, uh, but the urge, if anybody has seen the reaction of children just smelling the wrap, a piece of the wrapper of gum and thinking back the years before when they had sweets and see the look in their eye. Scrooge would have done it. No, it's not me. It was the children that uh, made it happen because of their gratitude. They taught me uh, several prime, but in that experience, those kids, what they taught me was what's important. Gratitude. Attitude, the attitude, look, we don't have, first of all, attitude. They taught me, you don't have, we don't have to have enough to eat. They said, just don't give up. They said, just don't give up on us. Someday we're going to have enough to eat. But if we lose our freedom, we'll never get it back. They knew what was freedom like. Their neighbors, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles on the other side of the border in East Berlin. We don't have to have enough. Don't give up on us. Someday we'll have enough to eat. But if we lose our freedom, we'll never get it back. Kids, 8 to 15. Okay, attitude. That's that's. And demonstrating the attitude. Uh, some philosopher said one time, and I, and uh, it applies to this case. You, a person can, can if they will, control 95% of how they react to a situation. You get ulcers, or you cope, or you find an alternate solution. 95%. The other 5%, he's, Schopenhauer said this, okay. Schopenhauer, I believe it was. The other 5%, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. So attitude, the principal factor, gratitude, the, explain the gratitude. So grateful for flowers to be free, they wouldn't ask for candy or gum. Attitude, gratitude, service before self. Uh, by getting out, the only way to true happiness is getting outside yourself on behalf of somebody else. Did you grow up in a, a family where... Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. We lived on this farm. 
I was the only horse my dad had. Well, he had horses. <laughs> he didn't have a tractor. But that was the, the things they taught me at my mother and dad's name. That uh, attitude, gratitude, serving others. Uh, we we had this small farm compared to most guys around us. And we get, first of all, it helped dad get the shirt be soon, get everything going. And then the, the neighbor needed help. We didn't have any money to pay for it to give us produce or something. And dad said, Go go help help them get their sugar beets sent, and it was part of the, part of the culture. We didn't, we, nobody had much money, and uh, and so attitude, gratitude, service before self. Service is the only true way to get total happiness. And here I was again before the war, going back to that airplane we bought for five hundred bucks. And the war was coming. Everybody, every young guy wanted to learn how to fly, and of course. We had, I had 35 hours, so I was an expert. I just got my life. So the, uh, my best friend, Conrad Steffen from Tremont, I was from Garland, Utah. Conrad Steffen from Tremont, one of the best buddies, about my same age, says, look, Hal, I, I, I want to learn to see if I'm just flying. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go in the military. I want to see how be if go in the Air, Army Air Corps. And, and so he bought the gas. And I got a lot of flying time with somebody else paying the gas. I didn't have any money for gas. And I taught Conrad how to fly. Kind of just faithfully. And they couldn't give him a license. But he, he, at Pearl Harbor, Conrad joined the, the Army Air Corps immediately. And he trained as a fighter pilot. And he, he was sent to England to escort the B-17 bombers over Germany. The Germans shot him down and killed my best friend. And I felt guilt. I felt a terrible guilt because I got him going. But I kept saying, look, he's going to learn from somebody. Don't, you can't take that way. So I had served before self, but serving, I knew it. the only way I broke that really blockade in my, in my heart was to look at the eyes of the kids when he opened up a chocolate bar wrapper or, or the way they waved that thing. With, and knowing that it wasn't the kids that was the problem. It was the director. It was the, uh, the dictator Hitler. It was the people that, that were that were over them. And that that was the thing that uh, I had a terrible block to overcome there, of course. The Conrad Stefan, uh, that was that was tough. But attitude, gratitude, service before service before self it solves a lot of a lot of psychological problems. And the, 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 the other factor was the little decisions you make in life. This is part of the, the quote out of the Book of Mormon. Little decisions you make in your life put your footsteps on the path to where you end up. And that little decision, and how do you get that? We use GPS today. We didn't have it then. But our personal GPS, we use the Holy Ghost. It prompts you to do this or don't do that. And it's, it, it gets you... Headed on the whatever decision you make puts you on the path where you end up. So those are the factors that the kids really uh, have been taught that. I've been taught those principles, and uh, but I saw them in action and, and through the eyes of eight to fifteen year olds, it changed my life totally. And you've been fortunate enough to meet several of these children or the ones that were children then, you know, years later. So from their perspective. What type of impact did this have on them? Well, when I went back as commander, I met hundreds of people who are now adults. 
experienced lots and lots of them. And the the thing that uh, touches my heart today is when I hear from her during the true years, hear those that uh, express their gratitude for for the 31 Americans and 41 British gave their lives for the enemy. They they were killed during the blockade uh, in, in air crashes. So 31 Americans and 41, 30, yeah, and, and 40, I think 41 Brits uh, gave their lives to former enemy. One of my buddies, Bomberlin, during the war, I lived in a other than the attic of a barn, in the attic of a barn, there's no room in the end when I got to your list. And we lived in the attic of a barn, and that one buddy says, I, I had bombed Berlin. I says, how do you feel about it, coming back here now? You just, after the war, you, you got married, you got a couple of kids, and all of a sudden they call you up and say, in, in four days you're leaving for Berlin and, uh, and to feed the guys that tried to kill you. I said, how do you feel about that? And he says, the hell of a better feed him when he was a couple. I'm glad to be back. Wow. That'd be tough. Wow. Oh, yeah, but service before self. And he's serving the guys that tried to kill him. Those are power. Attitude, gratitude, service before self, and a little decision to put your footsteps on where you end up, whatever that is. What would your life be like now, or where would your life, what path would it have taken if you hadn't joined the military? Well, that's that's a good good question. I I wanted to fly because when I, way before the war, and I got out of high school, saw the airplanes flying over the field and flying. I wanted to learn to fly. I didn't, I didn't know how I could ever do it, but I was going to figure out. I wanted to be a pilot. I read read a book about a cowboy, uh, and I don't know the name of the book, but it was a when I was in high school, uh, early in high school, I read this book about a cowboy that found an airplane out in the desert. And uh, the pilot probably tried to hike in. He had the had the emergency land on the road and had to, to hike, try to hike somewhere a long way from anywhere and died. And, and every airplane found it, and he taught himself how to fly. And I, I I just loved that book. And so I had that bug in me from even before high school when I got that read that book. And uh, I, I, what would have happened to me? Uh, I Technically oriented, I, I, during high school, I didn't see how you'd get, go to college. We had no money, so folks didn't. And I, I'd work for the neighbors for money to just buy things for me, and I didn't see any way that I could make it. So about it, when a junior in high school, a traveling salesman come by Garland, Utah, and knocked on my door and selling a, a correspondence course in refrigeration and air conditioning. He says you can get a degree, uh, not a degree, you can get a certificate, to fix refrigeration equipment here by correspondence. And when you finish the correspondence course, you you have enough, we put enough money in, it'll take you two years to do this course. And, and by paying the monthly payments, will be enough saved that they'll buy you a bus ticket from Utah to Chicago where we have the lab. And when you pass, when you fill all these volumes of, homework on how to refrigeration, the physics behind it and the mechanics of it. And then the, you can say, finish that satisfactorily, then we'll buy your bus ticket and put you up in the dormitory with some other guys in, in Chicago. 
to, to work in our labs to get a hands-on experience. And so that's that's what I did. And uh, and uh, what would I've done? I would have, because of that, I, I Western Auto Store in Tremont, Utah, says we'll give you a job when you get out to six refrigerators for us. And so that's what I was ending uh, starting out to do. But uh, then, then we got that slight scholarship there all at the same time. And uh, so I would probably ended up uh, getting a franchise for a Western Auto Store. And because uh, I, I was in, during high school, I'd sell stuff out of catalogs to people around town. So I thought that's, that's where I was headed. I would have I been, I would have had a, a dealership for a Western Auto store and uh, skill, I think, by working for, for the store there uh, off and on and right after I graduated from high school, I was full-time in the store for, for quite a while and I knew how, how to merchandise it and how to handle the inventory and knew all about it. So that's, that's where I would have uh, ended up. The, I would got into, if it hadn't been for getting, getting the pilot scholarship, I'd probably ended up as with a Western Auto store Interesting. dealer. Interesting, yeah. I used to visit Western Auto with my dad when I was little, all the time. Oh, get, my gosh. To get parts for my bike. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love the smell of that store. I, 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 that's, that's where I didn't like to end up. My good friend is well, well, Western how, Auto store. How did this, you know, this whole experience in Berlin, how did it change your life? Well, it, it changed my life because it, Became an international involvement. It was rich, and I, we, uh, when I was the commander of Temple Off for four years, we worked uh, worked very close at all American resources, uh, military resources, except for a special unit or two, under me. And uh, we would uh, work with the British and the French embassies, and uh, it was a totally totally new environment for a farm kid that didn't have a toilet in the house we got halfway through high school um, uh, had, a, had a Mercedes Benz and a driver for it had a gardener had, had a maid in the house and it was unbelievable the maid, the, I think to answer your question is yeah, I became aware of the international scope of things in the world uh, respect for other nations and their problems they have, and then what they have to do to have to do to meet obligations, and that directly honed my appreciation of the United States of America and the, the respect that the other countries had for us and the joint effort, jointly working with others in, in the Air Force. I, I enjoyed the cutting edge of the, the space program most of my career. The cutting edge of space. Uh, in charge of developing a new space booster for the Air Force and writing the plans for it, and they were accepted. And we and we got the Titan III, the launch, the space launch vehicle. It was a Titan II ICBM core, and we tied two large rocket motors, one on each side of it, put a huge payload, a manned orbital vehicle in, in the orbit. And so I was didn't want to, to leave that when they... Uh, they cast me back to Commander Temple off in 1970. I was knee deep in the, 
the space program. And I, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay where it was, but they said, Orson, the Air Force wants you in Berlin. The Berliners want you there. You're going. Well, uh, Mr. Halverson, you turned 96 years old recently, I do believe. Last yeah. month, I think. You uh, bet. Yeah, over. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, I would like to ask you, um, what advice would you or do you give to people who are struggling, you know, maybe with depression or anxiety, or maybe even those especially military-related, uh, you know, the post-traumatic stress and that type of thing? Yeah. I think the, the bottom line, and very straight to the point, you got to get outside yourself. You're you're Berlin blockaded individually, personally. You can be blockaded like the people in Berlin were, by if you don't get outside yourself. You got to be concerned about somebody besides yourself, and the bigger percent you're concerned about somebody else the less you're going to sit and worry about how bad things are or your own personal development. The, the, it, it's just that simple. And, and that uh, It taught me in primary in the church those principles. When I was just a little kid, my dad and mom, of course, but simple and succinct and to the point, get outside yourself on behalf of a good cause okay. that affects others. What's your perspective of the current state of affairs right now in our world? Well, I'm very much concerned about it, of course. It's all across the globe. Though. Keep track of the hot spots. And it's all, you know, all, all, this, all the friction is caused by, uh, by the desires of somebody to, to take over the lives of others. To not be appreciative of what they've got, but they're trying to, trying to change according to their own theory of and which isn't always from, from the best uh, teachers. Uh, it, it, it's, it's tough. And uh, I think the one thing we've got that we didn't, haven't had before is the plethora of communications that are available. And so uh, the first level of trying to help things out is to get the word out the best we can and, and, and not to put down other people. You start putting them down first before you try to give them something. You put them down first and get them on the defensive. But we need we need by better human relations, better communications, to understand others before we judge them, and then to see how we can affect. Well, the United States is incredible in that way. They're helping people all over the world in different areas, from Africa all over the place. They're getting outside of the country. And that's one of our strengths as a nation. Translates from an individual in helping others to a nation that helps others. And there's no other nation on earth in the United States that has done so much to help other yeah. outside our borders. And uh, that's one of our, our reasons for vibrancy in the United States. And what makes it so different. But uh, personal Experiences translates to national national level and same kind of principle. Well, talking about the United States, you know, providing aid to so many people all over the world. I know you've been, you know, you've been in leadership roles and, and lay positions in the LDS Church. Were you ever involved directly with any of the the wealth, the humanitarian efforts throughout the world? Oh yeah, I've, we've helped 
package. We, on a regular basis, we go to their warehouses and package up materials for people in South America or other places, uh, kits and for the for parts of the world that, where the, the, the church has got missionaries all over the world. Uh, and the needs are evaluated through our missionaries and, and what the people in that country was. England, a, a third mission in England, a third mission in Russia, uh, I served a mission locally uh, to help people that uh, need help. And it, it's going on today. With the, the, the LDS Church has got welfare farms all over the place. And I've worked on welfare farms. But it's sugar beets to, to get sugar to, to ship to people in the other countries that need it, or potatoes, or wheat, a lot of wheat. And uh, we bring all these things into the bishop's storehouse and, and into all over the, the West or, and the East, too. And they package this stuff for, for people in, in other countries. And maybe, a lot of times, it's not just people of the LDS faith. That's where a terrible catastrophe happens. And they put, bring huge organizations to, to get stuff down to South America where a hurricane hit. Or something like that. It's a, it, it's a exemplification of the giving instead of taking. And uh, you know, we've we've worked. My family has worked to people in these these assembly points to assemble the kits, that first aid kits, medical kits, uh, food. Well, sometimes still some dried, but uh, to get the most where it's needed to. Whether you just put water in it, but it's a tentative. Uh, what I was taught at my dad and mom's knee as a kid that go help your neighbor when you get beach thin here, go over and help both the school fields. They, they they still got something to do and they haven't got money to pay anybody. It's it's maybe oversimplified, but so the factors that I gave you, I think if if we apply them in our daily lives and and the, the example of their savior. He gave his life. So true happiness, you can't get it unless you give. Oh, that's great advice. I really appreciate it. Mr. Halverson, anything in closing that you'd like to say? No, I just expect to express my gratitude for being in the United States of America and to the Republic for the flag, the flag that flies over our heads, what it means, the, thing, the, the, the patriots have gone before have given us well, water from wells we haven't dug. These pages have given us skies of blue unmarked by the contrails of any aircraft. And they give us harbors that harbor friendly ships that, that serve others besides ourselves. So the, what I gained from that is just what I, just what I iterated, that uh, there's no other country in the world like it. We're in a really tough stretch right now with the diversity we've got and the leadership potentials and what people expect or want. But we've got a recent constitution was established. We've got Senate and the House. It's not in one person's hands. Yeah, yeah. That's where our strength, our difference in our strength comes from. And that's the well we've got to 
to to rely on to get us through this period of problems we have right now as far as unity is concerned on leadership. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, you I know you were featured in the movie called Meet the Mormons, came out, I forgot how long ago that was, but less than a year ago, anyway. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, you, you've been, yeah. you know, Tom Brokaw did a, a great special with you in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir one year. Uh, you, oh, you know, yeah. you're easy to find, but really, where would you, where do you direct people when they ask, how can I learn more about you? Well, the local missionaries, the, the young men, young men at 18, take two years of their life to forget about the pursuit of self-gratification to go out and help people that, that uh, are lost uh, as far as what they want to do or what they want to believe. And, and these young women go out a couple of years to 21, and they're, they're called, and they, they go out, and they're very effective and trying to help others. Right back to the basics that I talked about, their, their information and, and uh, of course, the Savior's example is, of service is unsurpassed. But as we approach that, the enormity of his, his service, we, as the scale gets closer, we think about somebody else, our lives are going to be improved, we're going to be changed. And in love with this, has to be respect for the rights of others to choose and not be judgmental. And that's where we're on the earth because we're down here to, to choose, make choices, to grow and develop. And the last thing that we want to get involved with is seeing, this, seeing other people's, other people are, are bad. Other countries are not, not as good as we are. They, they are born in the, under circumstances that we can't comprehend. So we got the first step is to respect the rights of others to choose. And say you know you you know you're you're on the wrong track. <laughs> so uh, we that's not our role. That's not our role to judge. If we can get get, get away from judging people and saying hey we we got a six year your situation, but enlightenment give them an opportunity to open the door and uh, respect. That's why we're here to, to make a choice. And we're not the ones to judge the results of Well, much respect to you, sir. I, I thank you not only for your time with me today, but for your, your service, many years of service to this country, and then also your, your lifelong career, your, your life of service to so many, both here and abroad. And um, you really are a great example of patriotism and selflessness. And, and by the way, how many, I know you, you know, how many kids and grandkids and great children, great grandchildren do you have? Yeah, I've got five children, three boys and two girls. I've got 24 grandchildren. I've got 43 great-grandchildren as of today. One of the things I didn't mention is when my wife and I were called on the mission to go to Russia, uh, I explained to the church authorities calling us that, that I, they, know, they know about me. I, I was working against uh, in my way and in the, the Air Force, I signed the tasks, and I, I better you better think again whether I should go to Russia. And we did. We went to St. Petersburg for 18 months. And the church was had a wonderful ward in, in Berlin. 
I'm in Berlin, in St. Petersburg, Russia. And uh, there I was, and we'd go out to visit different districts and train, and sometimes the evening to give lessons. And uh, the train would be jammed, and, and half of them were Soviet soldiers, all still in uniform, and they were the guys, former enemy, just like the Germans were. And uh, we found that the people, the people are the same, the desires, what they want. Got some very strong leaders of the, of the church, the Russians, and the Soviet Union. So one, one, not long after we got signed there, we had a, we came into mission home in St. Petersburg, and President Rogers from BYU was mission president, and he, he was a linguist, was taught Russian at Brigham University, and we in his home, and and we had in the leaders, the different churches around St. Petersburg for a monthly discussion of a special message from Salt Lake to Lambda each month. And the first time we met in that group in the mission home, President Rogers introduced me to a, a Soviet Russian. And there, there was a branch president of the church, a branch of the Soviet the war. A branch president introduced me to it, so that definitely want to meet here. And uh, I introduced myself to him, and, and then President Rogers said he was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Army. And I said, oh, my God. And I talked to him, and I said, oh, my gosh, uh, how, what, did you, what did you do and, uh, as a, a, a Soviet Army officer during the Cold War? And he said, well, I was in charge of uh, exercises to train, train our troops. I said, well, what'd you do? He said, well, on the tanks, in case the tanks were coming from the west to Russia, we, we would uh, take a tank and put a white star on it and start it out and, and, and blow the hell out of it. And I said, well, I think we did this. We the Army might have done the same thing. Here we might have painted a red star on the tank in our Army exercises. But it was, it was incredible to me to... to Stand there was the person that was one of them charged the Cold War and how are we going to get to it and how a friend and the common goal of serving others. That was a highlight for me. Yeah, I, I know you have to go, but could I ask you, did you have any struggles either when you first were called and found out you were going to Russia to serve a mission or maybe once you got there? Any problems at all with just internally with you know being with a former well, enemy? Well, at first it was a shock to me. I, I just that they said that the, the CES mission, Church Education System, job to do, and that was to teach, teach the teachers, to, to teach the, the Russian, the Soviet teachers of the different classes every month what the new lessons would be for the next month. Well, to get back to your, your question, I was, I was somewhat concerned. I was concerned, and I expressed that concern that, uh, to my church leaders. I said, I, I don't know how this. They, they probably know. They must know who I am. Uh, I'd, I'd rather have you reconsider and call me back. And uh, they, I got a call next week that says, Brother Allison, we've gone over this in headquarters, and uh, we think that you, the good Lord will take care of you and uh, Go ahead and do it. And so we did. And we had wonderful success. 
we worked with uh, worked with missionaries, and we were the ones that gave them uh, gave the, all the teachers and for the, their 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 Tuesday night mutual every Tuesday night for the young people uh, in the church worldwide. They have a special night for the young people, and they have a lesson, and uh, so we 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 trained the teachers. They're all Russians, all Soviet teachers. Uh, what the lesson be for the next month and meet with them every month. It was a wonderful experience. I'm sure it was. Well, the Lord knows what he's doing. I, in the show notes of this podcast, I will direct people to your your website. Wheeblylinks.weebly.com. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Appreciate it. Well, it's it's been an honor. Thank you for your time. You got my email. Go yes, ahead. sir. I've got it, and um, I, I will email you. I'll email you that when this when this is going to launch out uh, for uh, for Christmas. Yeah. I'd, oh my gosh, that'd be great! I'd like, sure like to have a copy of it. Well, sure, it's going. Yeah. You'll be able to uh, to download it. Okay. okay, I can talk. Good. I can Good. talk to you to get closer to to help you with that. Yeah. Okay. Been an honor to talk to you. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you too, sir. Have a good evening. Another Christmas day will come and go away And I've got so far to go, but I want to go home I need to go home Maybe surrounded by strangers and Christmas lights I shouldn't feel so alone, but I want to go home God, I miss you, you know I can close my eyes and see the angel on the tree A blanket of snow outside And all my friends and family And though I know that you're no further than a call away I need to see your face A call could never be The Christmas day will come and go away And I won't leave you alone No, I want to go home I've got to go home Let me go home I'm just too far from where you are Christmas Day will come and go away And I won't leave you alone 
Cause this Christmas I'm home 